I'll be reading um, from Matthew uh, chapter 16, uh, verses 13 through 28. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should not tell anyone that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thanks, Aaron. you look at this passage and you consider all that Jesus says, there's a lot of ground to cover in one message. So I'm going to pray for help now. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we turn our attention to your word because, Lord, it is our authority. It is our foundation. And so we ask for your spirit to fill our hearts, to illuminate our understanding, our minds, that we would understand your word, Lord, so that our lives would be changed so that our lives would be strengthened and our church would be strengthened and that we would look more like Christ as a result of being confronted with what we hear in your word this morning. So, Lord, would you help us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I grew up in northeast Tennessee, and where we grew up, Jennifer and I actually both from northeast Tennessee, where we grew up, We lived about 10 to 15 minutes from several entry points to the Appalachian Trail. In fact, uh, where we previously lived in the house we lived in prior to coming here, uh, we were very close within an 8 to 10 minute drive uh, within one of the 
places where the trail sort of crosses the road. And I've always been fascinated with the Appalachian Trail, especially with those who have hiked it. I know Joseph Baldacchino has done that trek and hiked the whole thing from Georgia to Maine. And I've always been fascinated by that, not because I could think I could do that, but just really appreciate those who, who could take that on. And I know Cody and I have done several little uh, two, to, two to three nighters on the trail, but it's always been fascinating to me uh, when I think about that, that particular trail. Well, as, as hikers who, who do the, the through hike, they, they do the complete trail. They begin March, April time so that they can end by about August or September, sometimes earlier, depends on how fast they are, because uh, you don't want to end up in Maine in January. That's not a good idea. Uh, but not too far into the trail there in Georgia is a, is a place called Mountain Crossings. It's actually a, a shelter that the trail actually goes through. It's the only place on the Appalachian Trail where there's a covered part of the trail. In fact, in that building even is a store. It's, it's, it's the connection uh, there, there. There's a store connected to it. And every year uh, at this place called Mountain Crossings, uh, this store, this, this building serves approximately 2,000 hikers as they make the trek through. And the unique thing about this store is, that, is they're, they're, a, they're a supplier of all things needed to hike the Appalachian Trail, right? But one of the things they also do is by the time, and I don't know how far into the trail it is, I should have done my research on that, but it's not too far into the trail. Uh, hikers by that point realize, many of them, if not most of them, that they have way too much to carry from that point to Maine, all right? And so one of the unique things about, one of the unique things about this, this trail and this store is that they will help, help examine and evaluate what, what's going on in your backpack. And so they will help you uh, retool, so to speak. They will help equip you to make the rest of the journey uh, in a much lighter fashion. You know, they'll take your flat screen and mail it home and, and all your library and all of that, literally. Uh, 9,000 pounds of gear each year is shipped from the store to the people's houses because they don't need it anymore. And so they sort of retool them. They evaluate that we're told over 500 backpacks each year shipping over 9,000 pounds of equipment back from the store to the person's home or wherever they need it to go. It's a personalized service that they, that they do for those who hike the trail there at Mountain Crossings. You know, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about being properly equipped for hiking the Appalachian Trail, it's critical. I mean, you, you have to have the right thing. And in fact, some hikers have more than they need and they try to pack on uh, non-essential matters, uh, equipment that they really don't need. And so this store helps them get exactly what they need. I was thinking about that. I was thinking about this text. I was thinking about as Jesus here and really in Matthew 15 to 17, there's a transition going on. Jesus certainly has been more and more resisted and attacked from the Pharisees and Sadducees, but the crowds are really starting to, to grow skeptical of him as well. And so Jesus really begins now focusing on his disciples. He's, he's really chur- turning, turning his attention. He's still doing public ministry, yes, but he's really now... Ig- He's pouring into his disciples. He's, he's really helping tool them and prepare them, equip them for what they're going to face as they move forward. Listen, he, t- he reminds them again in verses 21 through 23, that from your perspective, this is not going to end well. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And by the way, you need to be prepared for the same thing, verses 24 through 28. You need to be properly equipped. Now, Jesus also tells them he's going to raise from the dead, right? There's good news in that. He's not just going to die, seal him in a tomb, and, and have some kind of shrine. 
there the rest of uh, human history. Now, he, 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 he's preparing them. He's, he's helping them understand what exactly they're going to need as they move forward as the apostles, as the disciples, if they're going to be effective in their gospel ministry, which indeed they're going to need to be because of what's going to happen in the book of Acts and moving forward. So Jesus and his disciples, while, while they weren't hiking a trail, so to speak, they were certainly embarking in a journey. And they probably did more, more, more miles than, than anybody on the Appalachian Trail back in that day and time, having to walk everywhere that they went, with the exception of a boat every now and then. But he's, he's preparing and equipping the disciples so that they would be properly fitted for what was before them. And for us, when we read this passage today, what we're seeing, what we're, what we're seeing sort of as Jesus interacts with his disciples is, is what he prepares them for the tools that he gives them, the things that he's equipping them with, we need as well. Uh, We need these same tools, these same essentials if we're going to be living out our lives properly as followers of Jesus Christ. And so what this passage does, I think, is it helps equip us. It helps prepare us. It helps us have the proper essentials that we need as followers of Jesus in a fallen, dark world so that we can make an impact for the sake of the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom to the glory of God. So as Jesus adjusts this focus now towards equipping his disciples, there are several things, several essentials that I think that we see highlighted in these verses. And that's why I wanted us to go from 13 all the way to the end. I think they all sort of fit together. There, there are five essentials, okay? Two more than the normal three, but you'll, you'll, you'll bear with me. Five essentials for, for the follower of Jesus in his pursuit of discipleship. Let's look at the first one together. The first one is is what I call a foundational confession. Look at verses 13 through 18. For most of you who've grown up in the church, you you understand, or maybe you've not been in the church much, but you've probably heard reference to this passage before. This is is one of those uh, historical, important markers in the gospel. In fact, it's somewhat of a climax of the gospel of Matthew. Everything's sort of been building up to this point, and now everything's going to build down to the cross, ultimately, uh, from this point. Jesus presents his disciples with, with a simple question. Hey, what's the word on the street about who I am? That's what he says, right? Who do people say that I am? He, he asks his disciples that in verse 13. Who do people say that the son of man is? And they respond. Well, some people say you're Elijah. Others, uh, one of the prophets, maybe Jeremiah, John the Baptist. There's, there's all kinds of opinion out there about you, Jesus. If you just took a straw poll, you would understand that there are many opinions about you and many perspectives about you. And then, then he takes the question and turns it to, to an extremely personal question. And he asks them this question, but who do you say that I am? It's one thing that that's who they think that I am. But listen, you're, you're following me around. You, you dropped your nets. You left your families behind. So, so why did you do that? Who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? And for the disciples, this question is going to be a pivotal moment. It's a critical turning point for them. And so Peter, Peter likes to talk. He's one of the talkers of the group. Sometimes that gets him in trouble and sometimes he nails it. He nails it here, okay? In your Bibles, in Matthew 16, 13 through 18, put Peter nailed it right here, right? This is a good point. This is a good part for Peter. Verses 21 through 23, not so good. We'll get to that in a minute. He bombs it there, okay? He nails it here. He gets it right here. And so Peter, speaking up, most likely acting as a spokesman for the rest of the disciples, says, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simple statement, but two things that he, he affirms out of his mouth. Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you are the anointed one that we have been expecting. That's who you are. They don't see you that way. Pharisees want you dead. Others think you're somebody else, but you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. We've been waiting for you. That's who you are. And then stop there. You are the son of the living God. They, they point to the divinity of Jesus here. Peter, he's acknowledging that there's something divine about him. So he's the Messiah and he's, he's, he's divine. All in this one statement. Makes this confession. And by the way, Jesus wants to point out just for Peter's own, humi- own, own humility. He's, by the way, Peter, you didn't come up with this. The reason you're able to know that is God gave you that wisdom. God let you know that. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This was a divine revelation that God gave Peter to understand who Christ is. It was an opening of his eyes, an enlightening of his heart. For Peter to be able to say this confession. Friends, this confession ultimately creates a dividing line. Not a dividing zone, a dividing line when it comes to who Jesus is. Those who know Christ for who he truly is and those who don't know Christ. And that is foundational for your discipleship, for your own pursuit of Jesus. Listen, if you don't get Jesus right, you will get everything else wrong. That's what, that's what we're seeing here. It's Jesus is, is wanting, he's wanting to teach them. He's wanting them to go further in their understanding because they, they're, they're still a little foggy. And even here, they're still a little foggy. And, but, but he's wanting to drive home the point here. You've got to lay this foundation. Who is it that you say that I am? Everything that Jesus was building his ministry on rested upon who he was and what he came to accomplish. You get that wrong, you get everything else wrong. That's why we have so many dysfunctional churches today and so many churches that think they're churches and they're really not because they're building on a confession or on a foundation that is not Christ-focused, not Christ-centered. You get Jesus wrong, you're gonna get everything else wrong. I love what the great Anglican J.C. Rowell said, the glory of Peter's confession lies in this, that he made it. He made it when few were with Christ and many were against him. Friends, we know that today the number of Christ followers continues to increase by the grace of God, for the glory of God. Throughout the nations, we see continued numbers of people coming to Christ, but even at that, we know that we are still a minority in the world, true followers of Jesus. The gate is narrow, and few find it when it comes to salvation, but the gate is wide for and many go through that one when it comes to destruction. While the number of Christ followers certainly has continued to grow, we still live in a day when few are with Christ and many are against him. And so the simple question for you this morning, same question that Peter had, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? You get the answer wrong, everything else is not going to be properly ordered for you in your pursuit of discipleship. You know, our temptation 
It could have been a strong temptation for Peter. The temptation is that when few are with Christ and many are against him, the temptation for us, even for us, is to go easy on Jesus, to go soft if we're not careful. But we know, we know that the Bible speaks clearly about the Jesus, about who he is. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else. No one else. Salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. He is the one who came to bear our sins. He is the one, the only one that can give you life everlasting. It's where it all begins. This is the foundation on which you must build your your discipleship, your, your walk with Jesus. Notice the, the definite response of Peter's confession. He does not say, well, my opinion is. It seems like the, the consensus is. It's not in the confession. You are the Christ. No question. You are the Christ. Son of the living God. It doesn't matter what they say. This is who you are. It begins with this foundational confession. That's where your, your following Jesus begins. That, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is where you must start. We're glad you're here. We're, we're thankful to have you here. If you're not a Christian and you're in this room this morning, this is where it begins for you. This is where you need to go. You need to, you need to understand who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, and that he came to be broken for people just like you, so that if you would just turn from your sin and trust in him, believe in him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. You'll be welcomed into God's family. That is your hope this morning if you would look to Christ. Foundational confession number two, a trusted promise. Peter makes this confession, and then Jesus responds, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. One of the challenging things about preaching this, these verses this Sunday is that there's a lot of controversy embedded in these verses. And this is one of those places where there's, there's been a lot of, of, of talk, a lot of debates, what this means. Who's Jesus referring to here? When he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Personally, I think the text is quite clear. I don't know that we need to do any gymnastics to try to figure it out. It, it's quite clear from the text. There have been various interpretations. We know that Jesus is using a, a play on words. Simon, he, he now is referring to him as Peter. And we know that that comes from the Greek word that means rock. So Jesus is using a play on words here. Various interpretations. Just let me give you the three that are most prominent. Uh, there are those who say that Peter is the rock. Peter is the one being described here as the rock. That's the interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church. And they get from this text that he's the first pope, and there's this idea of apostolic succession that comes from that. Um, now, you've got to read a lot into that to get that because it doesn't say that. But they say he's the rock, and then you get this idea of the pope coming out of that. That's really the shortened version. There's a whole lot more to it than that. There are others 
who say, and this is probably a majority view within evangelicalism, that Peter's confession is the rock. When he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that Jesus is building his church on that and that confession, that statement is the rock. There are others, it's more of a minority view, but there are others who say that Jesus is referring to himself as being the rock. You go to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, where, where it's talking about Jesus uh, using rock language, stone language there, and they make that connection. So what is it? Well, when you look at the context, let me just read this. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When you look at the context and you understand what Jesus is doing here, I believe that no, and, and most majority of scholars today would say that Peter is the one in view. Peter is the rock, not in the Roman Catholic interpretation, though. He, he's the rock in that he represents the rest of the disciples and the teaching that's going to come from them. And it's on that which includes his confession. It includes the confession that, that this church is going to be built upon. So Peter, as the rock, is serving in, in essence as the first leader of sorts and representative disciple and therefore the foundation on whom Jesus will build his church. It's not as much, it's not as, it's not really Peter as much as it, as what it, he stands for that's being described. Uh, one of the church historians, Edmund Clowney, said it this way, the confession cannot be separated from Peter, neither can Peter be separated from the confession. Jonathan Lehman, he's an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, he wrote a book called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love, wrote this, Peter is signaled out here, perhaps, as the first among equals, because he is the first to rightly to confess, rightly confess the king's edict, behold, Jesus is Messiah. So the point in all of this is that Jesus is saying, upon, upon my apostles, upon my disciples, and what's going to come from them, included in this, certainly the confession, foundational, I'm going to build my church. But I think that really the focus that we need to see here, in light of all of that, is that the promise that flow, the, the promises that flow out of this response. And this is the promise. The church is going to be built. Amen? The church will be built. And the gates of hell, uh, really better translation is Hades, will not prevail against that. That development of the church. So Jesus here is giving his disciples and us, by the way, a promise by which we can base our lives and ministry on. Listen, we're on a winning team. And that should be good news for you Redskin fans, amen? You're actually on a team that's going to be victorious. You may, you may find that there's going to be struggle. You're going to find that there's going to be attack. You're going to find that there's going to be difficult. But rest assured, there is victory because Jesus promised that he will build his church. He will build his church. Friends, our efforts might see... Our, our efforts in kingdom ministry and even ministry in the church, we might from time to, si time to time see minimal fruits or we may see lots of fruits. But regardless of what we see, as long as we're being faithful and as long as we keep our eyes on the gospel and upon Christ, we can rest on the promise that God's people will be established and the kingdom of God will advance to the ends of the earth. No questions asked. It's a promise. 
It's a trusted promise that you can build your life and your ministry on, and that's what he gives his disciples. So you need to get the confession that's foundational, and then here's the promise, by the way. Listen, the the ministry you're going to be engaged in, it's not going to be ineffective. It's not going to be ultimately undermined or destroyed, but rather it's going to be victorious, and it will be exactly as God has planned. But then we see number three. Another essential that you need to have as a follower of Jesus is, the, is what I call a kingdom responsibility. Look at verses 19 through 20. And again, these are more verses that, that could be elaborated on at length. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. As Jesus, or as Jesus promises his disciples that he's going to build his church, he, he now introduces this, this new imagery of the keys. And I think sometimes we have this image of Peter at the pearly gates with keys dangling, and that's not what this text is saying. Verse 19 has often presented some difficulty as to what Jesus means here, and you know, this does seem there, there's a consensus that, that Jesus is extending authority to Peter and through Peter, the rest of the, uh, the apostles and ultimately to the church. So there's authority being granted, delegated here. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We're going to see more of this when we get to Matthew chapter 18. But when you look at these verses and you, and you see verse Verse um, 19, it's close connection to verse 18. He's just promised he's going to build his church. Upon Peter, his confession, the teaching that's going to come from the apostles. He says, now I'm giving you the keys. There's this idea of authority being granted. And so, in other words, the, the kingdom of God is going to advance primarily through the church. I'm going to build my church, and the keys of the kingdom is going to be granted to you so that the church is really representing the authority of heaven as it seeks to advance the kingdom of God. And so this authority is being symbolized by these keys. It's, it's a responsibility now that the church has and that the, that the apostles at this time had in binding and loosing. And some say, what does he mean by that? And there has been struggle as to understand exactly what Jesus means here. We know that he's, he's delegating authority here. But in, in essence, I, I believe what he's getting at here, especially when you tie it to other verses like Matthew 18, verses 18 and 19, you you see that the church has authority, authority to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to declare what is true about Jesus, and a responsibility to accept people into the church, therefore holding them accountable to kingdom standards. So it's, it's sort of a it's sort of an all-inclusive authority. You have the authority now to proclaim the good news of Jesus, which is the, the foundation of building the church, is how the church is established and how the kingdom is advanced. And then you also have an authority to exercise responsibility to those being accepted into the church and holding them accountable to kingdom standards. Ligon Duncan put it this way, the church has the authority together, one with who's, uh, has the authority with those who are admitted and barred from the visible church through the preaching of the gospel and the discipline of the church. So we have a kingdom responsibility as disciples to be gathered in a congregation. That's not an option, by the way, uh, for a Christian. The church thing's not an optional, 
option side thing, it's actually uh, encouraged and commanded and expected of disciples to be part of a congregation, to be part of the church because of what the church's responsibility is in preaching the gospel and holding those who are part of the church accountable. So there's this responsibility that we have. It's significant. It's a significant responsibility. Number four, I want you to see this, and we'll tie all this together in just a moment. We also see as disciples, we need to have an illuminated perspective. I said earlier that Peter nailed it in his confession, and he did. But look at verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is not something for you to, to copy. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, he's not saying that Peter was now demon-possessed and actually Satan living through him, but it was the, the perspective of the evil one. And, and you think about that. It's quite alarming to us to think that Peter goes from, from absolutely nailing it in verse 16. Just a few verses later, he's taking Jesus aside as if he's going to correct him. And he's in essence, rebuked. It, you, you think about that, even as a disciple today, you think about the, the, how, how easy it is. You, you know, you th sometimes we think that we've sort of arrived at this level of, of understanding as if we have no ability to, to, to err. Well, Peter demonstrates quite Quite abruptly here, how easy it is for a disciple to err, even when he is growing in his understanding. Friends, what we see here in verses 21 through 23 is God's plan. God's plan was that the Messiah would come in order to suffer. So that he could gather people to himself. It was part of the plan. It required him to suffer, to be killed, and on the third day be raised. Listen, without this work that Jesus keeps referring to, without this death, without this resurrection, there is no gospel. And it's because there, of the, the brokenness and the fallenness of this world and, 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 of, and of humans. God is a holy, perfect God, and we've rebelled against him. We've fallen into sin, and we are separated forever, and we can't fix that. We can't get ourselves out of that pit. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how faithful you think you can be, you can't fix that. But God said, I can. And so he sends his son in order to suffer in our place, to take upon himself the judgment we deserved, the, the suffering we deserved, and then to display his authority and power. He was raised from the dead three days later. The necessity of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the heart and soul of Christianity. And without any of these, the gospel crumbles. And so Peter didn't quite see the necessity of all of this. Which points to the fact, by the way, that he still had, he believed Jesus was the Messiah. But he didn't understand what 
that meant or what that was going to look like. They were slowly growing, but, but again, it makes clear for us here that they saw Jesus, even though they saw Jesus' position rightly, they were still unclear about how the Messiah was going to carry out that mission. And so the mistake here is that while Peter rightly confessed the position of Jesus, he was seeking to impose his own definition upon that position. And that is a dangerous place to be. Listen, we must, we must embrace Christ for who he is, not for who we want him to be. We're very good at, at crafting a Jesus after our own image and the way we like him to be and expect him to function. But what we have to do is humble ourselves and come to the authority of scripture and understand that this is how God has set it up so that you could be rescued and restored. We must embrace Jesus for who he is, not for who we want him to be. And it's just true. God's way of salvation is not man's way. Man's way is let me clean myself up and let me do enough good to sort of earn my way. And you can't. You just can't. Because of your sinful heart, because of our sinful hearts. So it's an illuminated perspective that Peter needed at this point that we need as well. We're, we're not exempt from these same kind of errors in the church. We, we can often go astray and we even are still tempted to try to, yes, we know that's what the Bible says, but uh, you know, let's, let's sort of look at Jesus this way. Well, I think Jesus is this, or I think, no, 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 no. Let's come to the word of God and, and allow the word of God to inform us as to what is true, not as to how we should think or what our opinion is. Peter still had a strong opinion that the Messiah would be a political Messiah. And Jesus had to help him understand the necessity of suffering, central to the gospel. And then number five, another component to essential, another essential to discipleship is a selfless commitment. You see that in verses 24 through 28. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. As Jesus explains these, these essentials of what I'm calling essentials to discipleship, you have to have a right confession, build your life and ministry on, on the, the promise that Jesus has made, engaging in this kingdom responsibility that we've all been given, having a clear perspective of who it is Jesus is and continue to grow in that perspective. He concludes this chapter by saying, listen, this commitment to Christ ultimately will cost you. It's a costly commitment. And so at this point, Jesus is zeroed in on confronting his disciples with the reality, with the reality of what this kingdom was truly about and what it would require. Again, they were slowly growing. But Jesus, moving forward, wanted them on the same page because he was going to go to a cross and die three days later be raised. And they needed 
to understand why and how their ministry would be built upon that work. You see, while Jesus' earthly ministry would lead him to a cross, he wanted his disciples to understand that the mission that they were to engage in would likely lead them to a similar fate because the hostility towards the gospel. It would cost them, in fact, most if not all of them ended up being martyrs for their commitment to Christ. Listen, what Jesus is setting up here, he said, you, you have to get an understanding of me right, not your own understanding. You have to get the understanding that comes from, from God's revelation and, and what the, the authority speaks about. But listen, you need to understand that, that this walk, this Christian walk, this discipleship that we refer to is, is something that, listen, when you come to Jesus, you do so on his terms, not your own terms. You come to Christ with, with a blank check saying, you, Jesus, you fill in that amount and that's what I'll do. And frankly, today, we have churches filled with people who want Jesus strictly on their own terms and when it's convenient. Not about sacrificing their lives for the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. Friends, self-denial is at the very heart of biblical Christianity. This, what we're doing this morning, is not about you and your ego. Yes, it's about building you and growing you and seeing you transformed by the grace of God for the glory of God. But it's about you being transformed and your brother and sister being transformed so that we together as we're being transformed could make an eternal impact for the glory of God in this world. And it will be costly. It will require you to sacrifice day after day after day. Unfortunately, many churches, especially, especially in the United States, over the years have preached such a shallow gospel that costs nothing. God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Just pray this prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, and all is well. The trouble with that, although there are elements of truth in those things, is that's not how the gospel is presented in the Bible. That's certainly not the way Jesus preached it. Here's Jesus' presentation of the gospel. If you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Repent, he says early on in the gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whoever want to save his life will lose it. Friends, the call to sacrifice and even suffering might sound unattractive to many. In fact, in the world, it does. In fact, they would call it foolish. But what we are being called to receive is greater, infinitely greater than anything you could ever imagine. And yes, it may cost you your life. It may cost you your time and your investment and your resources, which aren't yours anyway. It may cost you, but the gain you will receive will be eternally satisfying. That's the, that's the thing that so many Christians or professed Christians don't get. They just don't get that what we're talking about is something that's eternally satisfying, but yet day after day after day, they're willing to give that away for what's temporarily satisfying. Don't buy out great 
missionary martyr Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Following Jesus means that we do come to him with that blank check, and he fills in the amount. And we do this, by the way, motivated by what Christ has done, but looking forward to what we will receive. Verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Listen, you are forfeiting your life for a life that is eternally satisfying, rewarding in Christ, knowing that you're going to be held accountable for that one day. You are going to stand before Jesus and give account for your life as Christians. You, every single one of you are. You're going to give account for what you did, the cause of the kingdom. You're going to be rewarded accordingly. It's it's going to be a a revealing day for all of us. So as we commit ourselves to being followers of Jesus, to being disciples of Jesus, we do so motivated by what Christ has done already for us, but informed by what we're going to look forward to in the future when Christ returns and gathers us to himself and then calls us to account. We're going to stand in, before him on that day and give account for those blank checks. Indeed, a few, this, this glory that, that we're talking about, the Son of Man coming, the glory, it's going to be a glorious coming, and it's going to be far more than what we can anticipate. And some say, well, what, what's verse 28 mean? I think it's referring to the transfiguration in the next chapter. They're going to get a little foretaste of that glory, a little foretaste of that coming when they see Jesus transfigured before them. Friends, the call to follow Jesus is not a light matter. It is life transforming. It's not something that that we... Friends, if all this is to you is what happens between 10.30 and whenever I get finished on Sunday morning, if that's all Christianity is to you, I'm not sure that you really believe in Jesus. I'm really not sure that... I'm not sure that you're a Christian. I can't say that 100% sure, but, but if that's all this is, as to what we do on a day, and not a life that's being transformed every day, then I'm not sure you really get the gospel. So don't leave here today. If that's you, don't leave here without talking to me or somebody about, well, what does this mean? Help me. Help me further understand. It's life transforming. Jesus wanted his disciples properly equipped and informed of what this cost would be. What about you? What about you? Have you counted the cost? Have you considered, truly considered what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Surrendered your life to follow him? Have you professed him as your Savior, your Lord? Have you trusted in him? Have you believed in him? Have you embraced him as the confession that Peter had? Your confession, driven by a true heart that believes in Jesus for for you to be saved. If if that's not your confession, then friend, what are you waiting on? Today would be a fine day. Now is a fine time now, right now, to make that your confession. You don't need any fancy fireworks just right there where you're at. Trust Jesus. Believe him. Embrace him. Trust in him. Surrender your life to him right now. Trust in him. Friends, the rest of us, those who have professed him, I wonder how many in this room are still like Peter. 
We've made the right profession, but we still would like to have Jesus on our own terms. Or perhaps you've come to Jesus, but, but you came having already filled in the check. This is how much of me you get. Friends, you need to void that check. You just need to void it and rip it to shreds and get the blank one out and come to him, willing to follow no matter what it costs you. No matter what it costs you. What you gain in return, what you gain in return far outweighs what you could ever imagine here in this world today. Friends, we need to respond to this message. We're going to take communion in just a moment, but as you consider these things, as you see the gospel visibly portrayed through these elements in just a minute, just continue to ponder what Christ has done and whether or not you have truly responded to that work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us about these essentials. Lord, we could, we could spend an entire sermon on each one of them. But Lord, as we just sort of do this survey this morning, I pray for the, these gathered, all of us gathered in this room today, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would expose what the reality of our hearts are, what, what, what's truly taking place within us. And Lord, that you would work powerfully to, to bring conviction, to bring change, to bring repentance. And Lord, that you would help us see that these are not these are not options for the disciple, for the follower of Christ. But rather, these are absolutely essential. So would you move in our hearts today to lead us in response to, to bring you glory, to bring you honor. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.